You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Welcome back to church. Welcome to 2022. And I'm so glad to see all of you. We are back in Ephesians 5. And um, if you have just really started tracking with us through the Christmas break, we've been in, a, in the book of Ephesians. And so uh, I don't remember exactly which week it was that we left off, but we are back in chapter 5 uh, this morning. My name is Rob, and I want to uh, also give my, my welcome along with Caleb. Uh, we're so glad that you are here with us if you're new with us. Uh, let, me, let me catch you up. If you're new to the Bible or new to the book of Ephesians, the Ephesians is a book written by the Apostle Paul, and it's all about how through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God's broken into this world, and, and his spirit is changing everything. It's his, 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 his resurrection life has changed our status and changed our standing, uh, and that's what the first three chapters are all about. And then he starts talking about how this new life in Christ starts to change our behaviors and uh, all of our behaviors. And uh, that means everything. And the Bible doesn't shy away from even the controversial things uh, of, of the culture. And so today we're talking about sex and money and how the gospel and how God's grace transforms. You could say revolutionizes our view of sex and money. That's what I hope that the Spirit does in your heart, in my heart, is that we see in a new way how His grace transforms how we see sex and money. Now, the Bible assumes, and so I'm just going to say it right out of the gate, that we all have sexual brokenness, all of us. We all have a sexual past. We don't have the same brokenness. We don't have the same temptations. But we all have uh, brokenness in this area of our lives. That's what the Bible assumes about you, okay, and about me. Uh, the Bible also assumes we have a money problem. And, so, and we have a, like a generosity problem, uh, all of us. None of us uh, are perfect stewards of the resources that God has given to us. And so we all come into this topic of sex and money and everything in between needy. Uh, and recognizing our need for this kind of transforming grace. And so uh, what, I, what I hope us, hope that we see in chapter 5 uh, are, are three things that Paul lays out under the banner of sex and money. And uh, in the first two verses, it's a calling. In verses 3 through 7, it's a warning. And in verses 8 through 14, it's a reminder. So a calling, a warning... A reminder. And so let's first look at the first two verses there under a calling. Now you'll remember if, you're been, if you've been with us, these two verses uh, closed up the last section. But it's also kind of a two hinge verses that introduces what we will be getting into. So uh, Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And one of the key words in this section could be uh, missed rather easily, and that's that word as. It's very important. Uh, behavior follows our identity. That's what verse 1 is all about. Be imitators of God. Well, how in the world do we do that? We do that as we are loved children of God. 
Understanding yourself as a beloved child is crucial to any kind of imitation of God, any kind of walking this out, which you'll get to in verse 2. We can't walk in love if we don't understand that we are loved. We can't pick up our cross and follow Jesus if we don't understand that we are beloved children of God. Now, this word as could be translated, and some English translations do translate it, even as, or just as, or since, or because you are, all of those things could be used. Uh, Be imitators of God because you are beloved children. Be imitators of God just like you are beloved children of God. It's the same word that Jesus used when he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's just as it is, or like even as it is in heaven. Same, Same word there in the Greek. It's the same word that Jesus prays himself that we get to to listen in on when he's praying to the Father. And he says in John 17, you sent me and you love them, that's you and me, even as or just as you loved me. That's amazing. You love them just as you love me. It's a powerful statement. And Paul is echoing the statement of Jesus here in verse 1. We are loved like Jesus is loved by the Father as beloved children. Now, if you're like me, that is hard to wrap your mind around because you're aware of your weakness, your failure, your sin. You're aware of all the reasons why that shouldn't be possible. And so what you need to do is suspend your doubts For just a moment and imagine that you are an object of God's never-ending, perfect, pure love. And if that's too difficult to to imagine for yourself, imagine it for somebody that you think is more worthy than you are. You'd be wrong, but imagine it for somebody else because uh, maybe that is uh, more helpful. Um, Imagine the way the father loves the son. It's constant. It's perfect. It's never-ending. It's relentless. Now imagine that same love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father being directed towards you. Or like I said, somebody else like you. And put yourself in that place. Like, imagine if that were true of you. If that's difficult, it's, it, it should be difficult. We, we don't naturally think that that's possible. How could God love sinners like this? How could God love sinners like it says in Zephaniah 3? He rejoices over us with gladness. How can God quiet us by his love for us? Or how can God exalt over us with loud singing? The way a father delights over a child. Well, that's what the prophet said in Zephaniah Three, this is the way that God loves us in Jesus. He loves us with this loud, exuberant, glad exaltation rejoicing over us. That's the way a perfect father loves his children. Now, Sam Storms wrote an entire book basically as a commentary to Zephaniah 3. And he says, the cross proves to us that this cannot be overstated. It can't be overstated. He says this. He says in his book, The Singing God, which I highly recommend. I try to dip into this book every January, literally at the beginning of the year, just as a reminder of the gospel. He says, how else can I say it? 
When God thinks about you, his child, his heart explodes with glad celebration. There is divine glee and jubilation beyond words when the almighty God ponders his own. If it were possible to eavesdrop on solar systems millions of light years away, would we hear anything? Is there sound in space? I believe there is one voice that would indeed be heard. Even now, in the farthest reaches of infinity, among the trillions and trillions of stars yet unseen by human eyes, echoes forth the passionate voice of the Father singing about His love for you and me. Loudly and lively, God shouts with joy over His children. He fills the black holes with the light of his love and sings the stars to sleep with lullabies about you. So right there, resist the temptation to think that is just emotional sentimentalism. That is an accurate reflection of Zephaniah 3 and an appropriate expression of Ephesians 5.1. And if it seems too good to be true that we could be beloved like that, loved children like that, with God loudly singing over us, if that seems like that's just impossible, it can't be true, that's the gospel. The gospel is what seems like it can't be true is indeed true and should cause our hearts great peace and joy and love uh, reflected back to him. That is, that is the essence of good news. It's It's joy-bringing. It's joy-producing because of the reality of what is true about us in Jesus. Now, this is what the Apostle Paul is so strong on throughout his letters in the New Testament. He is focused on this. He is trying to get the Ephesian church to believe this about themselves, to fully accept that they are beloved children of God. Because everything else, all behavioral change is rooted in truly accepting this about yourself. Do you believe that you are a fully accepted and loved child of God like this? Because that's where freedom is found. And so so the gospel is supposed to wash us over and over again and sort of reprogram our brains to accept this. Even against our resistance, our sophistication. To push aside that and fully believe and accept the truth about who we are in Jesus. He goes on in verse 2, and walk in love. So you are loved. You're surrounded by his love. Now walk in love. Another favorite word of Paul is to walk. He says, walk in it as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You hear the language of love right there? Jesus willingly choosing us picking up his cross, suffering for us. This is what love is. It's Christ giving himself up, pouring his life out upon the cross, like a fragrant offering that that could be received by the Father, a sacrifice to God for us, out of love for us. Now, why did he say walk in love and not walk in faith? Because there's other times where, where Paul just as adamantly talks about walking in faith. Like in Galatians where he says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. I mean, you could see him using the word faith uh, here. 
walk in faith as Christ exercises faith in giving himself up for us. Well, truly, Jesus did exercise faith, but love is highlighted here for several reasons. Number one, faith and love, which are distinct. We're not saved by grace through our love. We're saved by grace through faith, through trusting him. But true faith, through spirit-given faith, always produces love. It's always attached to it. That's the fruit that comes out of faith in God. If we put our faith in him, love comes. Now, it's not perfect. Our love for God is not perfect. His love for us is. And so our love ebbs and flows. And we have good days and bad days. uh, But it's there. But that's the subjective side of it. But listen, love is permanently defined by the cross. We can't import our own, you know, language into love. We can't say, this is what love is, whatever I think it is. Or this is the definition of how I believe love should be. And, and we, or, or phrases like, love is love, which is a meaningless phrase. It doesn't mean anything. Well, that, that, I, I could import any kind of definition into that, and you have to agree with that. Well, no. This is the definition of love, and it's objective. It's defined by the cross. Jesus gave himself up. And take that in. Personalize that for us, for me, for you. He did that for you, becoming a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is how we understand what love is. Not our definitions. First John tells us this is love. Not that we've loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what he's doing. He's propitiating our sins, becoming a fragrant offering, sacrificing himself on the cross, his blood coming down, giving us new life who trust in him. That's what love is. But I think also love is highlighted here because of the warning that's coming in verse 3. We also read in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear. And don't we have a lot of fear when we talk about our sexual brokenness? We talk about sexual immorality, our greed, our our problems with idolatry and covetousness and all the stuff that he's going to warn us about in just a second. But perfect love casts out our fear. If we understand ourselves as beloved children of God, we can step into what he's about to warn us of and not not shy away and not uh, be afraid of what's coming. Like there's going to be some kibosh on us or something. We are loved and surrounded by love. And now walk, let's walk into this warning together in verse 3. So he goes on to say in the warning, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So as a reminder, again, this is the city of Ephesus that he's writing to. And Ephesus was a wealthy, tourist, seacoast kind of city. And it was a highly sex-driven city. Whatever happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus, you could say. And it was like really pluralistic. And so, you know, a little bit probably about Greek mythology. But several years ago, I got a chance to visit uh, Ephesus in Turkey. And I got to actually walk the streets of this ancient city. And the Greek mythology was everywhere. Carved in every pillar, every, every structure 
that you turned your eyes, you were reminded because their faces were staring at you of all these Greek gods. Every wall told a story of a God who must be served. And the gods were constantly at war with each other. That's what you were, you were reminded of constantly. But they were also mildly upset with you. And so the only way to live any kind of peaceful existence in the city of Ephesus was to get in good with the gods and to get favors from the gods. And so you, you, remind, you retold their stories, okay? You retold the, the stories of Zeus and Hermes and Apollo. You retold all those. You also gave, gave uh, promises and dedicated things, and you would give money, and you would get favors. So different gods provided different things like wealth or fame or health or revenge against one of your enemies. Okay, so that's what the gods existed to do. And the economy of Ephesus was dependent on how well people served the gods. And the biggest god in the city, if you'll remember, was the temple Artemis, the twin of Apollo. And uh, or Diana, that was the temple of Diana, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. That's for free for all you uh, DC fans out there. The, the, the stories just get retold and retold and retold. Diana promised fertility, long life, sexual fulfillment. And so the temple had these prostitutes for tourists and locals alike. And so just a highly promiscuous city. And uh, so when Paul is writing Ephesians chapter 5, he's aware of the background of what people have experienced and what they're tempted by. And he goes after their gods in what he's addressing. So when he goes after sexual immorality, he's going after their gods. When he says uh, no impurity, that's their gods. Covetousness, all of these are their gods. What does he mean by sexual immorality? Well, all behavior that objectifies people made by God in his image. So any behavior that's all lust, straight, gay, bi, all sexual acts outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And that is the sexual ethic of Jesus. That is the sexual ethic of the New Testament. That's what Jesus taught. And, uh, and, uh, and so there's... Okay, right there, we're, there's brokenness right here in, in this room. All, sex, all behavior in, the, in that category, it's a broad term for that. But it's not just sexual immorality. All impurity. That's anything unholy. Really anything. Anything that's not good, right, and true that he's going to mention in verse 8 is a good definition of all impurity. So like any unhealthy friendships or any relationships that lead you away from God, any activity that pulls your heart away from, from holiness and from godliness, all impurity is forbidden here. Uh, but then also all covetousness. What is that? That's wanting anything that God hasn't given to you. It's the essence of idolatry. That's, that's this excessive pursuit of money or things or stuff uh, wanting something, constantly thinking about what you don't have, that's living the life of an idolater. So covetousness is being warned against here. So greed, money, and sexual immorality. I think sometimes we can gravitate to, to one or the other in our culture and think this one's really bad, but all of it's bad. All of it's bad, and it all is a reflection of the gods that we worship. 
our own Zeus's, our own Hermes, our own Apollos, our own uh, false idols. And so he just goes after all of it. And he says, none of this stuff should even be named among you as is proper among saints. Again, what's he doing? He's reminding them of their identity as saints. How do you move away from stuff that you're, you're so connected to? Uh, stuff that has sort of defined you up until this point. It's this redefinition that you are a saint in light. And that's why it's not proper to, be, to have this named among you. You're a holy one. That's what saint means. You're a holy one. You're an object of God's loving preservation, his passion, his personal delight in you. It's one of Paul's favorite words of Christians. We, we call, you know, we usually say, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a believer in Jesus? His favorite word is, are you a saint? <laughs> uh, it's not a word I use very often, but probably should. Uh, 62 times in the New Testament, believers are called saints. And it's just a reminder that there's been this radical shift of who we are in the cosmos. And we are no longer in darkness, but we are holy ones, constantly and forever an object of God's love and protection. And so then that's why this, is, this doesn't make sense. It's just completely improper. Can you imagine a saint uh, engaging in sexual immorality? Of course not. Well, don't you do it either because that's what you are. And then he goes on in verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That's how a saint communicates. Thankful, grateful, aware of God, aware of God's blessings, constantly just living in the stream of God's mercy, his love, and his gifts, and giving back thankfulness, and not engaging in the foolish talk of the city and the filthiness or the crude joking. Well, is, is Paul banning all comedy in film and books and movies and entertainment? Well, no, he's not banning all humor. It's humor that degrades people. And you know the difference between the humor that uh, doesn't do that and the, the, the humor that corrupts. That's what's being talked about here. Crude, it corrupts, it spoils, it corrodes, it tears down. It's, you're laughing, but you're laughing at the expense of somebody else. And it's, it's humor that, that doesn't have thanksgiving attached to it. This is something of how we know if this is appropriate or not. Can we thank God for this? Can I thank God for this activity? Can I thank God for this joke or this meme that somebody sent me? Can I thank God for this YouTube clip? Uh, can I thank God for this podcast? Can I thank God for the subject of this conversation? If I can't, I, I need to move away probably from it. And so, uh, so that's, uh, it's learning, it's discerning these things as saints is what, is what we uh, are working towards. And so he goes on to the warning, to warn in verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now this is shocking uh, warning because the Apostle Paul builds up so much hope and expectation of being an heir of God. 
Being a beloved child of God means that you're, you're the heir of all things. And you are constantly in the stream of God's love and his protection. Now imagine having no inheritance. Nothing in front of you. Nothing to look forward to. And, and he says, this is the warning. Uh, there are people who have no inheritance in this incredible kingdom of Christ and of God. So he says, don't let anybody deceive you away from this with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So you see the contrast there? You could be a beloved child of God or a son or daughter of disobedience. And there is no in-between. You are a child of light or a child of disobedience with no inheritance. Or... A, or an heir of all things. It's just, that, it's just that stark. It's just light and dark. And it's heaven and hell. It's everything hangs in the balance of, of whether or not you're deceived or not. He's, and he warns uh, people against this teaching that is deceptive with empty words. And so, so what is this teaching? It's really important that we understand what's going on in the church of Ephesus. Well, there are people that are promoting that professing Christians can lead unrepentant, sinful lives after conversion. So they could have acknowledged Jesus or prayed a prayer of Jesus, but nothing has to change in your life. No, no visible change. And uh, that, that is an empty, deceptive and popular teaching, and it's popular to this day. So he's not talking about just the occasion of sin. He's talking about the lifestyle of sin without any repentance. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. He was aware of his own brokenness in all of these areas, how he'd broken God's law in all of these things. And yet, when, he, when aware through grace, he repented and turned and constantly turned. And that's what repentance is. It's Turning and trusting, turning and trusting, and not living a lifestyle of sin. It's moving towards the light and not getting stuck in the darkness because of empty and deceiving words. And so he goes on to say it's because of these things, these activities and this deception, that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so here's another thing that we don't joke about. We don't joke about anything that's real and anything that brings suffering and e- anything like that in our lives. And so we dare not joke around about the wrath of God. Nobody was joking around when Jesus walks into the temple courts and he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others exchanging money in the temple. It says that he walks out of the temple and then he made a whip of cords. If you can picture Jesus doing this, this is, this is, a, this is a whole other level, right? He made a whip of cords and then comes back into the temple courts and drove them out. Sheep and cattle scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So he wasn't more upset at the evil that was taking place in the temple when he overturned the tables than he was when he quietly walked out of the temple and made a whip himself uh, before he walked in there. And then gets in there and says, get these out of here and stop turning my father's 
house into a market. And so he's, he's going after evil in that. And that's what the wrath of God is. It's God's holy and just, you can say, loving response to evil. But it's a settled anger. It's not this explosive thing that's on a hair trigger. It's settled, and it was settled in Jesus' heart, and it's settled in his heart now. He, he, he hates evil. And there's a, coming a time where he will say what he is saying now, invisibly, visibly. Get these out of here. And get this darkness and this evil out of this place. And that's why there's this warning here in verse 7. Don't become partners with them. Don't settle into that deception. And, and don't think that nothing in your life has to change after you become a Christian. No, you have to take up your cross. You have to follow Jesus. You have to walk in the light. You've got to put sin to death. You've got to uh, follow Christ. And that's sometimes very hard, but we do it together. And we, we walk in the light together as beloved children of God, walking towards our, our God who loves us and helps us. So that's what, uh, being, being a partner, that's that same lifestyle language. A partner is joined language. Don't join with them in that lifestyle of sin. Get out of that lifestyle. Don't be deceived. And uh, don't deceive others with empty words. So that's the warning. But then he gives a closing reminder. So look again at verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So again, he says, that would have been appropriate if, or not appropriate, but understandable if you were darkness to live that way. But you're not darkness anymore. Now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Again, he had said you're, you're loved, you walk in love. Now he's saying walk as children of light. So it's love and light surrounding us. So walk in that. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and all that is right and true. Now what's he doing here is just echoing what Jesus has said about believers. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Once the light turns on. Once God turns that light on, it doesn't get unturned on. Things can dim the light, but it never goes out. You are the light of the world, and believers can be seen. You can see followers of Jesus because they look a lot like him, and they look a lot like their father, and they can't be hidden. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, The righteous one day are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. We will be recipients, apparently, of the light and love of God, and it will so infuse us and out and reflect off of us that we will outshine the sun. It's just fascinating to imagine and to think about. I mean, we're going to head into... One of the worst weeks, I think, because you're taking down lights, right? You're taking them down in your house. You're taking them down outside. How many of you already started taking your Christmas lights down? I wish I were you because I have to do that this week. 
And I, I like to put them up, but I hate to take them down. I mean, even when they're up, the problem with lights are they don't stay lit. You know, the fuse goes out or the bulb goes out, and you always have to keep them lit. But listen, this light that God puts in our hearts, this Christmas light never turns off, and it never comes down, and it only gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Day by day, year by year, the older we get, it gets brighter and brighter. And so that's, that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, you were once darkness, now you're light. The, the light's been turned on. So verse 10, try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. You could look at that and say, aren't we already pleasing to the Lord? Well, yes, but now try to live this out. This is, this is not done in isolation. This is done in community. We need each other to, to help each other discern what's pleasing to the Lord. So listen, God's unchanging, but God is pleased or not pleased by the choices that we make. He delights to live in us, but he does not delight in all our choices that we make. He refuses to delight in our sin. And so verse 11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, notice, expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. It was very tempting for people in Ephesus to talk about what was happening in Ephesus, because something was always happening in Ephesus. He says, don't get pulled into that. That's not your world anymore. That's not who you are. Don't be that guy anymore. Don't be that girl anymore. That's not who you are. Uh, don't take part in that. But notice the word expose. Instead, expose them. This is the best defense, right? Is a good offense. So he says, do the opposite to expose. And that means, that word there means to convince through argument or discussion. And this is exactly what Paul did in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. If you remember that story, because he exposes evil and he goes after their gods of sex and money and it caused a riot. And here's what happened. I'm just going to read it to you. He says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Okay, you follow this? This is how he made his money. And brought no little business to the craftsmen. That means he made them a lot of money. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Uh-oh. That's a problem. And he says, And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnific magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. See what he's getting at? 
the whole economy is going to crumble because Paul is convincing people and he's persuading people and he's exposing the fact that Artemis isn't real. And our economy is built upon this temple and the temple prostitutes and the shrines and everything that we're making. We're making a whole lot of money off of Artemis. And so sex and money are, are, are interconnected. And the Apostle Paul and the gospel is tearing it down. And verse 28 of Acts 19, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He starts starts a riot pretty quick. A mob breaks out. And so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. And they dragged in Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were Paul's companions in the travel. I would encourage you to continue to read Acts 19. The town clerk shows up and says, the emperor's going to string us up if we don't shut this down. Um, Paul escapes with his life, you know, from this moment. And uh, all because Paul went after their gods. And, and essentially, what did Paul say? He said this. He says, Artemis takes your life, but Artemis doesn't give life back. None of your gods do. And listen, that's what sexual immorality does. That's what porn does. Porn takes your life, but doesn't give life back. That's what obsessing and greed does. It takes life from us, but it doesn't give life back to us. Uh, Covetousness. Wanting something that God hasn't given to you and may never give to you. But living in that that place of of, of, of an unquiet heart that we talked about last week. Of just wanting something that God hasn't given, obsessing over that, it's taking life away, and it's not giving life back to you. And that's why he concludes this, this section in verse 13. He says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It's seen for what it is. When, when light touches something, you see it for exactly for what it is. That's what he was doing in, in Ephesians. He was exposing What's real and what's not, and what's true and what's false, and what's dark and what's light. And he says in verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. And hear the invitation here. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Which is uh, basically a paraphrase of Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 verse 1 says, arise and shine. For your lights come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So I want to invite you. If, you are, if you're saying, you know what, I, my lifestyle is sin, idolatry, and covetousness, and, and just broken thing after broken thing. But I want an inheritance, and I want to be loved by God. I want to be a beloved child of God. Hear this invitation. Awake O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. As you come to Christ, he will shine on you. He will not turn you away or say, well, you got to clean up and get better and do some resolves. That's what the gods of the world say. There's not some transaction. You can come receiving life and receiving light by simply 
receiving it by, with, with open hands of faith and saying, Christ, I want you to shine on me. And I want to challenge you to do that right now. Like you can say it right in your seat. You could say, Christ, shine on me. I'm awake and I'm coming up out of the dead and I want your life and your light to shine upon me. And he will do it. He will respond to that prayer of faith. So hear the invitation and respond if you've never responded. And you will have an inheritance and a, 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 a father who loves you eternally and relentlessly. And he will never let you go. And he will love you like he loves his son. And he is calling you to trust in him. But there's also this, this uh, reminder in this text. It's not just this invitation. It's this reminder. Look, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. That's what you and I are. We've been exposed by the light. For some of us, that might have been painful, at least a little bit. But then we became visible to God. We became known by God. And we've started to receive the love of God. For anything that becomes visible is light. Again, hear the, the, the identity language. This is what we are. We are light. That's why it says Christ will shine on you because he has shined on us and he is shining and he forever will shine upon us. That's what he said in Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We're no longer in that domain. We are in a whole new place in the light of Christ. We are receiving that light even today, right where we are, right in our challenges, right in our weaknesses, right in our failures, right in our awareness of all these places and things that we need to grow in and change and all the behaviors that we need to adjust, maybe even the resolutions of the new year of 2022, all the things I want different about my life. Listen, before we get to any of that, we've got to see and understand we are right now basking in the light of grace in the love of our Father. And we are beloved and we will be loved forever. And, and now, now let's walk in, into the light and let him, him change us. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.